Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. That forthwith you come without tarrying and fulfill my desires and command and persist until ye end and according to my intentions and I conjure you by him whom all creatures are obedient unto and by his ineffable name of which be heard ye elements are overthrown the air is shaken the sea runneth back the fire is quenched the earth trembleth and all ye hosts of celestials terrestrials and infernals do tremble and are troubled and founded together together Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Hey, I'm Christian Sager. Christian is joining us from Brain Stuff, and uh, you may be familiar with him as well from the How Stuff Works uh, video channel. Uh, obviously, we kicked off this episode a little different uh, than normal. You Generally, we don't... Uh, reach out into the ether and attempt to summon any kind of extra-dimensional forces. Yes, exactly. And that uh, reading was a, a, a direct quote from a conjuration spell within a grimoire called the Lesser Key of Solomon. But for your protection, I only read uh, one paragraph from it so that no demons will manifest <laughs> upon your listening to this podcast. That's right. The last thing we want to do is crash any servers with demonic activity. 
now I think a lot of people have some degree of pop culture uh, interface with this topic. If nothing else, we've all seen movies with magical books in them. Yeah. Um, I mean, how often has the Necronomicon uh, shown up in various uh, horror properties? Yeah, I, I'm I'm wondering where it first showed up, but it, I'm assuming my first uh, film interaction with it was probably Evil Dead. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's obviously a, a go-to staple now. I think even cartoons reference it now. Like, yeah. I believe Adventure <laughs> Time and, and, and shows like that even have, like, kind of wink-wink nods to the Necronomicon. Yeah, if you don't have the Necronomicon, you do some sort of... Uh, um, um, take on it, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. It's just this go-to dark, uh, forbidding uh, m- manuscript from who knows where that contains all sorts of secrets, contains all sorts of uh, of power, and uh, and is the the gateway for uh, for mortal uh, readers and and users of the text. Yeah, and even uh, I think uh, the Harry Potter movies had oh, yeah. books that were kind of like that. They didn't call it the Necronomicon or anything, but wasn't like one of their books for class was like a living book that like could bite you and like lived under your bed or something. Oh yeah, I think like that, that was right? the Monster Manual. Yeah. yeah, the Monster Manual was itself a monster. Yeah, um, yeah. Which which is is wonderful because I feel like those Harry Potter examples play directly into a lot of what we're going to talk about here. Yeah, about absolutely. These, these books of magic, these uh, these these highly fetishized uh, tomes, and and how we think about them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, what's really fascinating is that they actually existed. These yeah. books are a a huge part of real history. Uh, and specifically today, we're going to talk about uh, their history, mainly around the medieval period. But, you know, what what a grimoire is, what it means, what what people used them for and uh, sort of the political and historical purposes of them. Indeed, I mean that's the the really fascinating thing about this is that you have this you, you have the, the fictional and, and and fantastical element uh, here certainly, but uh, but when you follow the threads, they lead uh, they lead back into history and they lead back into just how we uh, interact with the written word. Yeah, absolutely. And so, like starting off with that, do you think uh, this is a good point to start talking about the etymology of the word grimoire, the yeah, actual yeah. the written word grimoire? <laughs> Indeed, like we yeah, are grimoire. What uh, what does it what does it mean? Well, so there's there's a couple different interpretations, and I should say that most of our uh, our information here comes from a book called Grimoires: A History of Magic Books, which is written by a guy named Owen Davies, and it came out in 2009. And, uh, seems to be from, uh, our research, like the go-to book on the history of these things. There are a couple books that came out earlier, but they weren't as completist as yeah. this. Uh, and he does a really good job of covering the, the overall history. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today is really only from like the first, the introduction in the ch- first chapter, maybe. And he, the, he, he keeps going with it down the road, but we're mainly focused on the early period. Yeah. If after this episode you want a deeper dive into that topic, be sure to check out, um, um, Davies' book. I'll include a link to it uh, on the landing page for this episode. So Davies has this, uh, he says grimoire has uh, been interpreted as coming from the Italian word rimario, uh, which is a word that means a book of rhymes or Bible verses. Uh, but that there's also uh, an interpretation, which I found in another source as well, that says that it's actually based on the French word grammaire, which is, as we know it, grammar, uh, referring to a work written in Latin. Specifically, these books were almost always written in Latin at the time that they were uh, pretty popular, although they were influenced by other languages and cultures, as we'll see as we go through this. 
Now, those uh, those fictional magic books we we mentioned earlier are probably a good way to to think about what a grimoire uh, consists of. But but really, when we break down exactly what a grimoire is, uh, generally we're talking about a few different attributes. Uh, typically, a lot of strange symbols, right? Um, a, a lot of uh, a lot of the grimoire is just the the sheer appearance of the volume, particularly how it might appear to uh, to uh, individuals who stand outside its tradition or, in in, in fact, uh, illiterates who are looking at it and are just impressed by the overall uh, uh, visual knowledge of the thing. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there were... Um Davies uh, designates there being two forms of these books. There's a small format kind, which is uh, around 20 to 50 pages, and he calls them like pocket books, basically, mm-hmm. um, because these weren't like generally the, the long texts. Uh, so, yeah, 20 to 50 pages for those. But then there are also these large, massive folios that were in a manuscript form. They're probably handwritten or copied from handwriting. Uh, and they're kind of fascinatingly large and made of strange materials or purported to be made of strange materials like animal or human skin or they're written in blood. Um, and some of them actually were, Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's fascinating kind of, uh, what, what defines a a grimoire, what, what makes it. And essentially it's, it's an alternative library to the Bible and that, uh, acts as a source for all these different magical traditions that sort of spun out of culture and superstition and the occult over the years. Yeah, so you're talking of everything from recipes for for various uh, um, healing potions, if you will, or treatments, um, uh, to more uh, supernatural ideas such as the the conjuring uh, of of demonic forces or angelic forces, etc. Yeah, there seemed to be a specific obsession with. Uh, almost categorizing and naming demons and angels oh, yes. and what each of the, it was like the, uh, the, <laughs> the handbook to the Marvel universe of the medieval times where they like, <laughs> they, they listed all of their, their names and powers and the special things that they could do and how to summon each particular one and what they could tell you. At the end of the day, most of these books had one goal for their reader, which is to give them hidden knowledge, to give them secret knowledge that no one else had access to. I found it interesting. You mentioned uh, some of you, you mentioned that the large volumes and then the smaller ones, the smaller ones being the more mobile. Uh, yeah. And there's one in particular where the binding is, uh, is has a longer fabric on it. So yeah. It could be tucked into your belt. Yeah. So yeah. The, the mobile version of the text that you would carry about uh, during your daily life. It's like an iPad case. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are fascinating. And there was sort of an assumption about them that uh, you had to have a, a, a certain amount of training or academic acumen to be able to even understand them. And that if you didn't, there were rumors that you would, you know, there were traps intentionally laid into the text that would cause curses or somehow... Uh, maligned the person who was reading the book, but they they didn't have the you know the expertise or skill to to harness its power. In a way, this reminds this idea of there being a trap in the uh, in in the manuscript, and and if you think of these spells as kind of programs, uh, it kind of lines up with if one is attempting to uh, illegally download something today, you 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 might get the file that you're looking for, but you might yeah. get a little something extra there, and if you were informed enough to uh, to work around that curse, you can still get exactly what you want. Yeah, exactly. It's and and I think we'll get into this as we're going along. But there is a 
mm, a connection between those two things throughout human history of the written word and there being something both powerful about the written word and uh Potentially dangerous. Oh, indeed. Um, in in his book, Davies says, quote, But grimoires also exist because the very act of writing itself was imbued with occult or hidden power. Um, it, you know, it's important to, to keep in mind that, that only in recent times has the means to preserve written text become something that's cheap and accessible to, to everyone. For the longest, literate cultures only utilize paper for extremely important texts, often uh, Often magical or religious uh, significance involved, uh, and paper especially was an expensive product, uh, prized, preserved for special occasions and re- religious rituals. Uh, for instance, uh, during the sixth century, uh, Buddhist monks uh, introduced paper to Japan, and as in China, it became a rare and expensive product, something you prized and reserved only for these just highly specialized occasions. Yeah, and they it, that lended more value to this idea mm-hmm. of the written word as being magical and powerful. That that paper was rare, and maybe ink was rare at that time yeah. too. And certainly literacy was rare. So being able to understand what was even in it, much less have the quote unquote expertise to navigate around magical traps. Yeah, I mean, uh, and just to to sort of step out side of our, our current interaction with it and, and think and really almost make an, an outrageous overstatement of the obvious. Like when you write something down, you're able to to completely preserve uh, the 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 steps to carry out a, a right to create a um, you know a, a particular dish. I mean you name it, you're able to to take uh something that is uh, otherwise kind of ephemeral and subject to uh, forgetfulness and change and you're able to to set it in stone and and, and it's it's like reaching into your brain and taking something out of it and saying here it is here is the idea yeah and i think y- y- there's obviously a connection to this too beyond magical grimoires mm-hmm. i mean uh, early uh religious movements had access to the the clergy within Christianity, for instance, they had access to the written version of the Bible and they, they for a long time were the only ones who could read it and understand it. And then subsequently pass on the word of God to their congregation, right. uh, which in a way was a kind of magic of its own at the time. Indeed. Um, Davies also points out that writing was uh, primarily a tool of magic for the Batak. Uh, these are various ethnic groups uh, um, that uh, lived in modern-day Sumatra, uh, dating back uh, a thousand years or so. And uh, they, they would preserve um, all of their uh, their rites, uh, religious rites, uh, more faithfully, obviously, in the written word versus the oral tradition. So the art of writing was the, was the domain of their, their Datu priest magicians uh, who wrote in magic books that were... Uh, unfolded strips of bark yeah so this gets us into this area where like what you're writing on too has Mm -hmm. has uh significance right so they wrote on bark and then i believe uh there are examples of of other um cultures writing on particular kinds of food Mm -hmm. and and then subsequently uh even with grimoires or sort of like early versions of them that were just like one sheet of paper with some magical incantation written upon them there was a consumption aspect to this that if you ate the writing, that mm-hmm. it would somehow affect you. Yeah, one of the things I love about the uh, the, the, the grimoire um, subject here is that you see so much of the, the fetishization of books mm-hmm. and the idea that I, I've taken this idea, I've written it down, and the book has become physical. And then I'm able to interact with the physical embodiment 
of these ideas, of this uh, sacred knowledge, etc., cetera, uh, in various ways. One way, of course, is just to have it on a shelf to impress people, which you would yeah. see with magicians back in the day, which you see in a modern day, like, lawyer's office. You or even, there, like, what are all those books about? Uh, academics. Like, yeah. I, I remember when I was in grad school, like, the professors sort of had this unspoken challenge amongst themselves of who had the largest bookshelf space in their office <laughs> and they were envious of one mm-hmm. another over who had the largest collection that they could display and subsequently lend to students or other professors yeah 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 and th- that still carries on today obviously um <laughs> despite the popularity of ebooks i don't know if there's any professors with just a one e-reader sitting on their desk with it's, 5000 it's hard titles to show it off. i mean that's one of the big yeah. things about e-readers uh and one of the things i miss is being able to sort of casually show off what you're reading to yeah. other people as you're reading it. Yeah. Not because you want to start, you know, to show off or or anything, but you, occasionally you would uh, strike up a conversation with someone about the book that you're reading, and now mm-hmm. it's all, all secret. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose that's a different topic for another time, but there are attempts, I think, from the electronic book industry of trying to make them shareable and social, but mm-hmm. it's not, it doesn't work the quite yet the way that it used to, in the way that you, you just hand like a tattered book to somebody. And it's uh, far and like, more difficult uh, to eat. Too. Yes, yeah. exactly. An e-reader would not grant you magical powers. Uh, or even uh, it's within the Bible that there is a section about uh, the con- consumption of this. It's in Numbers 5 from the Old Testament. Uh, and this is, I don't believe that this is from the actual verse, but it says, a woman who is suspected of adultery can be brought to a priest and made to undergo the trial of bitter water. And what they mean by this is that the priest writes inside of a, uh, he writes curses inside of a book and then he takes the book and he blots them out with water and then he makes this woman drink this water and it subsequently will tell if she's guilty or not by causing her belly to swell and her thighs to rot. So that's how you know whether or not uh, somebody's been adulterous by <laughs> forcing them to drink dirty water, dirty ink water. That's see this is amazing because it's the uh, again the the idea has taken physical form and then you're able to interact with this physical embodiment of the the idea or the tradition or the faith uh, in in the most primitive ways possible by yeah. consuming it by drinking the waters from it and you see a lot of this just uh, you know to your point with the Bible itself um, I mean look look at the the way that it is has been used and continues to be used held up as a sort of grimoire it's not it's the, the Bible is is not one hundred percent a grimoire but you see some of the same attributes applied uh, such as um, you see Bibles placed under the under pillows to protect people from evil spirits. Uh, even today, it's touched. You swear an oath on it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Obviously, there's this is about the the magical properties of of the the physical text. And what was kind of fascinating to me, like diving into the research on this subject of grimoires, is that uh, I'd never realized how deeply intertwined they were with the history of the Bible, mm-hmm. and that a lot of what we think of today as being sort of uh, magical, whimsical, almost fantasy type uh, ideas. Uh, they can you can trace their origins back to the Bible and back to the beginning of Christianity, uh, and it's just kind of fascinating. But uh, there was even more of that kind of uh, ingesting of books and inks and holy uh, writing. Back in medieval times, uh, I, say, I say that like medieval times, like we're going to a Renaissance fair or something. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, yeah, it's just kind of fascinating that that uh, begins in this Old Testament area. I'm sure there were probably origins of it before then, uh, and then traced their way up, you know, 500 years later. 
Yeah, multiple uh, cases of the holy word being either written on something edible and then consumed uh, to treat illnesses yeah. uh, to, you know, other cases of uh, rinsing the manuscript and drinking the water from it. Um, yeah, again, it, in all this, we see the, the fetishization of the written word, language made fixed uh, in a way that it captures meaning, procedure and story. And then it becomes uh, the physical embodiment of idea made into matter that can be utilized in both physical and imagined spiritual means. Yeah. And and so, you know, not to uh, uh, belabor the point, but the the ingestion of these books, that wasn't <laughs> the only thing that people did with right. them. It's fascinating to us now to kind of look back and think, oh, wow, people just ate these books and thought they were get, you know, getting powers or, or expelling curses or something. But they, you know, obviously they were using them for magical rituals mm-hmm. as well. But then there's this also kind of fascinating uh, area in the 1400s and 1500s where there were treasure hunters, kind of Indiana Jones types. Yeah. And they were accused by, I, th- I believe, the clergy at the time of using grimoires and other kinds of quote-unquote magic to control spirits or demons who guarded wealth. So they were like, you know, breaking into the Temple of Doom and using these books <laughs> and just, you know, some way to to uh, make it safe for them to get through to get the buried treasure or whatever. It all sounds like a D&D adventure, but, it, you know, it was at the very least uh, something that was it was a propaganda that was that was used against the such kind of bounty hunters or treasure hunters or, or whatever. But ultimately, we're talking about magical thinking and magic here. Yes. And and this is magic with a capital M. Uh, the idea of there being distinct distinctions in schools, again, very Harry Potter, very Dungeons and Dragons, um, that these different books had uh, aspects to them of certain types of magic that they would teach you or that they would give you control over. So some of the ones we're going to encounter in here, are natural magic, obviously demonic magic, mm-hmm. necromancy, and then there was an idea of astral magic, too, that you were somehow harnessing the powers of the celestial bodies. Uh, this is obviously uh, before uh, astronomy really took root. Right. Uh, but the idea of using those as magical powers. And one of the most infamous grimoires that does this is a book called the Picteryx, I believe is how it's pronounced. Um, and it was it was very influential. It's also referred to as the aim of the sage. Now, with natural magic, um in this, we're we're getting into almost sciency magic, right? About interacting yeah. with natural processes in the world. Yeah. So natural magic was sort of like if you're familiar with uh, like the Dungeons and Dragons breakdown, they were sort of like the druids as compared <laughs> to the uh, wizards or sorcerers. They were more interested. Uh, natural magicians were more interested in using herbalism mm-hmm. and uh, finding a inner magic within flora and fauna. But you know, ultimately, what that meant was kind of. Uh, exactly like a science to the natural world around them and what they would, they would, uh, share this knowledge within these books. It wasn't as much, uh, here is such and such demon's name. He is the ruler of this level <laughs> of hell. If you say his name three times backwards, he'll show up and give you a piece of gold, right? It wasn't yeah, anything like that. It was that. more about, especially within the, the Christian tradition, it could be seen as, uh, exploring God's creation rather than, uh, trying to uh, enact unnatural control over um, exterior forces. Yeah, so it's kind of fascinating that all of these different things, things that we now think of as being science, of, you know, uh, 
biology or astronomy or chemistry or physics were at the time considered magic and were lumped together with things like summoning demons and listing angels and being able to raise the dead. Uh, and, you know, maybe we just haven't uh, uncovered the, the, the scientific uh, appropriation of that just yet. And, of course, we also see the influence of Jewish mysticism uh, with the, the book of Raziel and the book of Mysteries. Uh, you have these situations where Jewish-Spanish scholars uh, uh, bring these into the, the Gomorrah tradition from the Torah. Yeah, in fact, there's this really interesting story that I, I believe was in Davies' book about um, how in Cairo uh, there was a stash of, of grimoires that were discovered uh, inside basically somebody's abandoned home, I think. And it included the Kabbalah, which we, we know today as being, you know, a type of Jewish mysticism. Um, and, uh, this was a sort of like an interpretation of the, the Torah as being like actually the, using Hebrew as the language of God, right? And that mm-hmm. it had its own magical combination. Uh, if you move the letters around, uh, you could you could create different effects basically with oh, those. Yeah. Um, Lining up with the, uh, if I remember correctly, with the the golem. Yeah, it was uh, yeah. I think the word life and death. Uh, I forget which, which one, but there was a word that would you would put on the forehead, and if you change mm-hmm. one letter, it would spell death, and that would deactivate. Yeah, the, uh, I, I believe the golem legend is Czech. Maybe. Yeah. Um, so I remember being in Prague, and there was a lot of uh, golem. Uh, tourism uh, <laughs> around it, but um, but yeah, I think that that's right. That that the, the idea behind that kind of magic for making a homunculus like that mm-hmm. was just by being able to manipulate the the letters of Hebrew language. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And there's also this really interesting influence later on on these these types of books from Scandinavia. Uh, in fact, uh, Iceland was a part of this as well, and the idea was that the runes from their language and mm-hmm. from from their religion uh, were also used as magical symbols and seen as they were things that uh, Europeans didn't understand. They didn't uh, e- even once they be- started to become more literate. Then you saw, you know, Hebrew or uh, or these 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 Nordic runes and they had a mystery about them. You didn't quite know what they meant and they still had power to them more than, 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 you know, the romantic alphabet, I guess. Uh, but the, you start seeing later in the, in the medieval era, these different languages get incorporated into these same grimoires that are about summoning demons mm-hmm. and are largely in Latin. So as we try to dive into the, the, the deep history of grimoires, uh, I, I mean, obviously there's a lot that's lost to the mists of, of time here. Mm-hmm. And to, you know, frankly, a lot of destruction of books oh, yeah. over uh, religious wars, basically, when, mm-hmm. when it comes down to it. But a lot of these books were lost to us, to history and to understanding because they were burned mm-hmm. um, f- for being against whatever was kind of the status quo culture and theological interpretation of the time. 
Yeah, particularly the uh, the more uh, scandalous volumes, yeah. the more demonology uh, uh, themed, uh, as opposed to the natural magic, which which again uh, can often be uh, uh, if, at least uh, viewed in terms of uh, of being in keeping with uh, with with Christian. Uh, Standards. Yeah, in fact, let me see if I can find it in my notes here, but there's this fascinating part of uh, during the Inquisition. I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but um, that that during the Inquisition, there were actually uh, there was less attention paid to those natural magic books. In fact, in 1258, Pope Alexander IV told inquisitors, look, just ignore uh, books that are about divinations, natural magic, that kind of stuff. What we're looking for is, quote-unquote, manifest heresy, praying at the altars of idols to offer sacrifices, consult demons, or to elicit a response from them. So they actually ignored a lot of occult traditions that didn't necessarily challenge their own uh, religion or dominance. And it's kind of fascinating because when you go back, even with these demon summoning uh, magic books, there is a, a tradition that goes all the way back to the beginning of Christianity uh, from these. So so when you look at, uh, according to Davies, the history of grimoires, the very first person who's, who's supposed to have written down magic is this astrologer from 480 BCE who was named, I believe this is Ostthenes. Ostathanes? I don't, I might be pronouncing this wrong. I, my, my, my ancient language pronunciation isn't that great. But, uh, he was, he was basically like a courtier to King Xerxes, Xerxes. And, uh, in an attempt to conquer Greece, they, they, you know, purportedly used these magic books. He's b- described as being someone who tried to infect the world with his, quote, hideous craft. I like that. <laughs> It, it's interesting that that charge would be be leveled in an environment where uh, one people is attempting to conquer another, engaged in in, in full blown out warfare, yeah. uh, with all of its bloody consequences. Yeah, yeah. And then you know we go from there to uh, supposedly the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, talk about a the books of Enoch, which are, are you know could possibly be a lost book from the Bible. Uh, it circulated around the time of Christ, and it was largely a book that was filled with astrological and, and angelic lore. And in fact, there was this idea with a lot of these books that angels actually either gave these books to men, like handed these books to men, or came down and uh, spoke the words to man, and and man transcribed them from an angel's voice. So that's where we initially gain this magical insight from is is that these these beings came and and and, and delivered it to us right and and with that you're i guess depending on how far you go with it you could certainly get into heretical waters but uh to a certain extent you're kind of playing it safe because you're like well an, an angel brought it to me you're not going so mm-hmm. far to say that god came or that jesus showed up but uh but some sort of angelic uh, entity came yeah there's a, a potential out there if, yeah. you're, <laughs> if you're caught and and this is where it gets into like the real uh tight connections with the bible is that uh, one of the the most popularized ideas within these grimoires was that Ham, known as the son of Noah uh, and brother of Shem, was one of the main people who was responsible for writing these books of conjuration and magic. Um, he uh, supposedly invented magic with the help of demons, and then he taught his own son, whose name was Canaan, to, uh, to write these down in 30 volumes, but that 
after uh, Kanan wrote these 30 volumes down that there was a large battle and these books were burned. Uh but maybe some of them made their way out there into the world. You know, that's how these these legends of occult uh, tomes begin. So it's a uh, real fascinating that there's this direct connection between Noah, his family, the sort of uh, uh, resurgence of humanity and mm-hmm. magic. Yeah, that, that's interesting, and certainly that's you know, we're talking about a time and uh, and a particular myth here that plays into uh, not only Christian and, and Jewish traditions, but also early uh, religions like uh, Zoroastrianism, uh, also flowing into Asian and uh, and Egyptian beliefs to a certain extent. Yeah, and by and large, they all had one thing in common, which was that these manuscripts were used to give financial sexual or even social gain to their users. It was ultimately about power. Yeah. Um, whether it came from ham or a demon or an angel or whoever, uh, the, these books were by and large used to have power over other people or at least give the illusion of it. The, the, the exact same topics that you might buy books of tape on in the uh, the 80s uh, you might buy any kind of self-help manual today yeah. it was essentially the the domain of the grimoire in ancient times yeah and it's interesting so like uh then you get you get so it goes from ham to moses um moses was actually seen as being a magician because of the stories that are in the old testament about oh, yeah, turning he's throwing rivers down into blood. with egyptian uh, sorcerers yeah. like they're yeah. it's like a contest of who can turn a, a staff into the greatest snake exactly and that because his god was more powerful than their magic he was seen as being this incredibly powerful you know a wizard essentially mm-hmm. he was the gandalf of the bible to some yeah. people uh and um there's this interesting idea that there were hidden books of moses that moses actually wrote books of the bible that that didn't make it into the final content that we know today as the Christian Bible, uh, and that within those is where you would find this information about whatever, summoning demons or having magical powers, being able to turn water into blood, all these kinds of things. Um, and Moses is sometimes conflated with or or maybe somewhat pitted against the idea of the, the great Egyptian magician Hermes Trismegistus. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he's also known as 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 Toth, the 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 god of wisdom, uh, and 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 sometimes confused with the Greek god Hermes. There's a lot of magical insight and uh, uh, power and knowledge that supposedly flows out of the tradition of Hermes and Toth. And then, of course, you have Solomon, uh, another uh, another character from uh, from the Bible that has a lot of uh, a lot of superstition and an occult uh, um, information woven around him. Uh, this is the son of David, and the Testament of Solomon is the first book attributed to him, showing up at some point during the first uh, five hundred years of the Common Era. Yeah, and what's fascinating about the Testament of Solomon and these other books that are supposedly written by him is that they they have this this common story, and you see this the the, the book that I read from at the beginning, the Lesser Key of Solomon, is related to the Testament of Solomon. Uh, it, the the idea was that Solomon received a ring from the archangel archangel Michael, mm-hmm. and this ring had a symbol on it, which we now refer to as the Seal of Solomon. Uh, which he used to bind demons because these demons were attacking the holy temple that he was building. And he was able to control these demons so they would stop hampering the construction of the temple and then make them help build the temple, <laughs> which is kind of fascinating. Uh, the, this is the temple, of course, that housed the Ark of the Covenant. 
And the seal today, we think of it as being the pentagram mm-hmm. or uh, sometimes a hexagram, but basically this symbol that has become, you know, largely associated with the cult and Satanism and stuff like this. But in these books, we see Solomon using it to control demons, actually, to and that it's given to him by angels by, what I, by heaven i love about this uh, this account is that it, it sounds very lazy on the angels part yeah it's like the angels yeah. are supposed they, to be working security now look we, we don't have time for this here here's the thing that i was going to use just uh use it responsibly don't <laughs> yeah. go crazy it's just, the ex machina of yeah. the book of solomon <laughs> and he's like well i could just drive the demons away or heck i could make them build the thing for me uh, i'll just borrow it a little while longer and he also ends up using it you know after after his practical reasons are done in the temple is <laughs> is finished. He forces these demons to identify themselves and this is where we get this sort of encyclopedic knowledge of demons from oh, yes. what their powers are. He basically makes them all tell them his name, uh, tell him their names and then tell him what are your powers and he lists them all and what are weaknesses in case somebody else encounters you down the road. Uh, like So for example, there was a demon supposedly named uh, Agcon... <laughs> <laughs> These names are so hard to pronounce. Agchonian, I believe. Uh, and he was known for laying among babies swaddling clothes and causing mischief. So I imagine that this is like the, the demon of dirty diapers, apparently, yeah. is what it sounds like. Um, but if you uh, wrote the word Lycurgos on a leaf, you could make him flee and run away from the baby's swaddling clothes. So these are like Solomon's sort of uh, interpretations of how to use magic to make all these various demons, which just sound to me like kind of like everyday problems, like yeah. cleaning your baby's diaper. Uh, <laughs> there was uh, it, it reminds me too of the, the late we already mentioned like the 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 inclination to name every angel as well to yeah. the catalog uh, those guys and I think this is one that had been created partially out of satire uh, was a particular angel whose sole job perhaps was to go around the monastery and if any uh, particularly the older monks fell asleep uh, during uh, the service, yeah. um, he would cause that monk to fart, <laughs> and uh, you know, as just punishment yeah. for, uh, for for nodding off. Oh man, I wonder what the fart angel's name is. Yeah, yeah and how did he get that position? <laughs> you know? We need a ring to force him to <laughs> tell us all of his secrets. Uh, well, the interesting thing about the, the the Testament of Solomon, though, is that Solomon's story, and this I believe differs from the Bible. I don't know. My, my Old Testament isn't that uh, great, but. Uh, supposedly he lost the ring and these powers that were given to him because he actually kind of turned away from God and made human sacrifices to uh, an older God uh, from uh, you know Canaanite times, I believe, mm-hmm. named Moloch, uh, uh, because Solomon wanted to sleep with a woman. Uh, and he built temples to other gods or demons. Uh, Rapha was one of them, and Baal is another one. That's a common name that you see pop up in these grimoires as being a, a demon name. Um, so it's just interesting that these tropes kind of like make their way through many later grimoires that are supposedly written by Solomon. But there's this long story of that, you know, he had the power. He was able to get all this information out of these demons. He got it from angels, but then he lost it because like, like man, of course, he, he, uh, let it go to his head. He had powerful life hacks at his disposal, (laughs) dangerous life hacks, um, he went away, but those life hacks are still out there. If only we can we can claim them, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's it, is that the idea is that they're out there somewhere. 
uh, and not everybody has access to them, but if you can find them, then you will also have the power that he had. And maybe this time you will be the human being who, who, uh, doesn't fall prey to his own ego, perhaps. Um, but yeah, there are other books that were supposedly written by Solomon. So there's one called the Ars Notoria, which is, is pretty famous. Uh, that translates into the notary arts, which doesn't exactly <laughs> sound super, uh, occult or, or brutal to me nowadays. <laughs> but, uh, but I suspect that notarization it carried a lot more weight to it back then. Some of the titles of these books at times kind of sound like the fake names they send off out with the reels for, for films. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. like kind of Blue Harvest type stuff. Yeah. Because, uh, there was one that I was reading called uh, the Sacred Book of the Cow, I believe, uh-huh. and uh, it included uh, some some very uh, very fascinating instructions on how to create a homunculus. Oh, uh, yeah. And then, of course, the things you can do with a homunculus once you've created it, yeah, uh, to do things like walk on water, etc. But uh, yeah, the, the title Sacred Book of the Cow. It's kind of like the notary art. Yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of burying the lead. Yeah. <laughs> it should be called, like, Homunculus 101. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, the, when you're talking about the, like, the lesser key of Solomon, like, that sounds grandiose. Yeah. That sounds like secret knowledge, the key to yeah. secret knowledge. Yeah, and in fact, the lesser key of Solomon a- is actually, like, a, I guess you could call it a sequel, because there was the key of Solomon as well, which is also known as the clavicle of Solomon in some cases. Huh. Uh, which I think is kind of interesting, but, uh, you know, ultimately it's about conjuring and performing rituals that will provoke people to love you or punish your enemies or make you invisible. So it's kind of the, all the things that, you know, you could wish for if you're like a, a 14-year-old boy. Yeah, I'm imagining <laughs> Solomon uh, like on an infomercial late at night. Yeah. So would you like to meet women? Would you Would you like to be better at your at your job? Uh, it's ultimately what these kind of these these grimoires sort of were. Yeah, I think the like comparison to self help books is 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 somewhat interesting. But uh, the idea that someone has this knowledge of how to live a better life than the one I'm living right mm-hmm. now, and I'll I I will pay them tithe uh, to have access to even a sliver of that knowledge. Yeah, and then of course to to partake in a ritual. I'm, I mean, any kind of ritual, like so, you know, so much of the the power in it is that you're kind of you're giving up your own will for a little bit to follow these particular instructions to become one with this particular rite, and uh, and you know, there's something just uh, you know very attractive in and of itself there. Yeah, and so of course we see these connections between Solomon and Moses and Ham and these other uh, uh, religious figures, for, especially from Christianity, in this sort of history of where they came from or the, this mythology, I guess you could call it. But then there actually started to be a, a, a real history between Christianity and these books and between these magical traditions that uh, conflated. Uh, how how we understood them, and of course we talked about uh, ultimately destroyed many of these books. But uh, what's fascinating to me is that there is basically this battle for influence of culture, for uh, sort of understanding of the world between mm-hmm. these books and these traditions and early Christianity. Yeah, and then plus you throw in uh, you know, influences from uh, from Arabic texts that are filling yeah. in. Uh, Always reminds me of the the Umberto Eco line about uh, books speaking with other books and having conversations with each other across the ages. Yeah, this is absolutely in uh, Umberto Eco's wheelhouse. I think if you uh, if you've ever read the novel Foucault's Pendulum, it's it deals highly with the idea of these magical ideas traced back to, through libraries of the ages and archives and secret knowledge, cults, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, 
So there's this, uh, you know, it's actually mentioned in the Bible about this, this, this sort of battle going on between Christianity and, and grimoires. Uh, so it refers to it in Acts 19, uh, saying that they were burning these kinds of books. And it, and it actually gives monetary value to these things, saying that they paid 50,000 silver for those that were burnt in the, I believe is the city of Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to give you uh, sort of a cons- uh, comparison, at the time, one silver was the equivalent of a day's wage. So we're, we're talking about 50,000 days worth of wages in these books. These books had uh-huh. value to them, even though they were also reviled in some cases. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was bought it? Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And the the Leech books are the ones that I'm uh, really fascinated with, too, is because not only was Christianity at war with magical books and 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 literature and texts but they were also using them yeah um the, the clergy at the time had access to these books we, i think we now call them leech books but they're basically like medical manuals mm-hmm. and they had the, it, it was some of that natural magic we were talking about before so they were like ideas of of, of um, herbalism in there but there was also spells for healing and protection again so for the D comparison these would be like the clerics <laughs> uh and 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 there were actual uh, rites of exorcism within there as well too so how to banish a demon well and of course you see this throughout the history of christianity right as it spreads into a new area and a new people and a new culture um it's it's fighting against existing traditions but also absorbing Existing traditions, and you end yeah. up with with a hybrid yeah. to some degree. Yeah, exactly. A lot of, and uh, that's a really interesting point too. Is that that sort of like um, mysticism of Christianity is from incorporating other cultures as it spread around the world. Um, but yeah, so there's that there's that aspect. But then th- this is really interesting to me that that uh, some people at the time started turning the 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 sort of uh, negative influence of grimoires back at Christianity. So there was this point in time uh, where there there were rumors that popes and saints were actually behind closed doors uh, delving into these magical arts. And there's actually a book that's called The Grimoire of Pope Honorius, which was a, largely basically a, a smear campaign against this pope uh, persecuting him as being a magician. Uh, and the idea was that uh, maybe that the papacy, because they protected the Knights Templar, and oh, the Knights yes. Templar were associated with sorcery, mm-hmm. or that uh, there was this idea that popes were actually summoning and controlling demons themselves. But ultimately, it all came out of this propaganda campaign by Protestant reformers against the Catholic Church. It's kind of fascinating that they, sort of their PR campaign was to incorporate occult texts into it and say, oh, well, you think these books are bad? The Pope is actually (laughs) responsible for them, and he's written his own book on how to summon demons. Yeah, um, I mean, you would see anti-Catholic propaganda. And the weird thing is, you can, if you look in the right places, you can still see this kind of like anti-Catholic propaganda from uh, other Christian sects today, where they essentially yeah. label Catholicism as uh, some sort of form of sorcery, or- mm-hmm, mm-hmm. especially in, uh, I would say, you know, uh, there's there's a tradition of American uh, 
distrust of Catholicism, mm-hmm. uh, especially in politics. Mm-hmm. But that, that's probably going down a different road. But uh, yeah, so the monks and clergy themselves were accused of you know using these books and writing these books and transcribing them largely because uh, you know like we were talking about earlier, they were the people who could read and write, uh, and so of course they would be the only other people who would have access to these books. Uh, and, and in fact, there is historical evidence that they did have, have some of these books in their collections. Uh, there's a guy named Friar John Ergholm, and he was found to have 300 occult volumes in his library. Uh, and there was also, uh, infamous, not infamous, famous, Franciscan friar Roger Bacon. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he actually at the time was, uh, very critical of the way that these books were sort of mythologized because, uh, their writers were claiming that they were written by Solomon or Moses or somebody else so that they could, you know, apply some kind of, uh, uh, magical significance to them. Uh, and what's funny is 300 years after his death, people started writing books of necromancy and claiming that they were secret books that he had written. Huh. Uh, and so he gets pulled into this whole thing, even though he was totally against the idea of this uh, mislabeling of the author within these magical texts. Yeah, it's interesting to see the uh, just, just how these books sort of cascade through time. With of course various texts informing each other, and then uh, and then the the uh, the various attributed authors popping up again and again, uh, almost like some sort of uh, almost like the like fan fiction, uh, yeah. following through the ages, spilling off of uh, organized religion and uh, an older uh, ritual magic. Yeah, exactly. It would be like that the the characters from the Bible were like the Avengers of the time yeah. and people were writing their fan fiction about what kind of things they got up to between the lines of the book. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, though, in a lot of cases, women were not allowed to be, uh, you know, responsible for these texts or or to even interact with them in any way. Uh, and it's interesting, before the 16th century, they were very rarely accused of even being involved with them at all, of using them or writing them, any of these kinds of things, uh, basically because this kind of magic was associated with masculinity. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that most of the the men that were using these books were, were doing it so that they could figure out how to entice women or, again, like, turn invisible. I'm, I'm just imagining there's this medieval version of Porky's where they're, like, <laughs> turning uh, invisible and trying to sneak into a locker room room or something mm-hmm. like that but but yeah essentially the advice within these books was not only do these um do, are these the purview of men but do not associate with women when you're conducting these kinds of rituals cuz perhaps something could go wrong there yeah i mean you see the division between you know sorcery and witchcraft where uh with sorcery you're talking about learned men using these ancient texts to uh communicate with demons to bind generally masculine demons to their will. Um, and from a very sexist standpoint, that you would not attribute that to women in the age. The idea that this woman is going to uh, enslave a male demon, yeah. nonsense, you know, yeah. or, or would have the, uh, the, the, the the knowledge to read one of these texts. Yeah, witchcraft was sort of more about the, the demons were seducing the yeah. women. The yeah, it was other, more about the other way around. female emotions and yeah, yeah. falling under the, the power of these demons. Yeah. It will, the, this is another fascinating statistic from the, uh, the Davies book. He says, um, before 1350, over 70% of those people that were accused of using magic in courts 
were men. But by the time of the 15th century, so we're getting into witchcraft persecution Mm -hmm. then, 60 to 70% of them were female, and that women had largely supplanted the sort of grimoire cultural community from being male magic because of this. So the Inquisition ultimately kind of flips, flips the gender roles there. And of course, throughout the witchcraft persecution era, you have witchcraft theorists who are fighting the good fight, if you will, against the witches. But in doing so, they are creating their own grimoires. They're creating their own manuals of what's going on uh, in in the world of demonology and all of it's coming out of the testimony from from these uh, for these women and and men and in some cases children obtained via torture and the uh, inner recesses of their own mind and their own expectations yeah and and, and ultimately uh it, it's all they're all kind of getting at the same thing that within and, and this is where we've come full circle here from what we were talking about at the beginning is that within the written word whether it be these grimoires or the bible or the manuals for uh was it the maleficus maleficarum yeah the hammer of the witches yeah uh, uh, books on how to deal with witches and how to torture and get witches to confess these written words were their sort of understanding of the world it was a way for human beings to sort of limit the chaotic uh, occurrences around them so that they could you know kind of kind of uh, put a box around it and make mm-hmm. some sense of it. And, and that sense wasn't always uh, necessarily positive. It, yeah. had, it had a lot of dangerous and, and uh, unfortunate effects, I think. All right, so so here's the question. As we've been talking about, uh, in many cases, these, uh, these painstakingly prepared, uh, handwritten tomes of, of arcane knowledge... Um, and these have traveled through the ages. They've been uh, they've been uh, translated. They've been uh, transcribed into new volumes. They've been burned out of existence, and they've been secreted away. But then you enter the age of the printing press. Yeah. And to what extent does that destroy the mystique and the power of the grimoire? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, from from Davies' book, uh, my understanding is that it didn't destroy it. Mm-hmm. The, uh, it still continued on, and, he, and we even we still have versions of these books today, and they were largely popularized by different movements at the beginning of the of the uh, 20th century. But um, but the, it there was a certain kind of aura to these books when they were handwritten and made. Uh, made of certain kinds of materials rather than mass produced. Right. Um, that is somewhat lost when they're, uh, mass produced, but there's still something alien, something kind of, uh, foreign about not understanding the thing to consider within them, whether it's because you don't read Latin or you don't know, uh, what particular Nordic runes mean right. or Jewish, uh, uh, Hebrew, uh, letter forms mean. Uh, there's, there's something about it that not just every person, even those who are literate can necessarily, uh, translate and understand fully, right? So it, yeah. it's, it's, it, it comes back to this idea of this hidden expertise and hidden knowledge that you have to have. Yeah, cause even if it's mass produced, it's still a, a mass produced riddle. It's still a mass produced puzzle. It's still mm-hmm. a mass produced, um, item that requires a certain degree of, of expertise and uh, and tinkering to master. Exactly. Yeah, you can't just open the pages and have the secrets of the universe unveiled to you. You have to go into it with and this is another like kind of very male dominant idea from the time, but you you have to go into it with the the knowledge and the uh 
the maturity to be able to control those forces, you know. And of course that leads into our modern era of e-readers. To what degree Mm -hmm. do these texts still maintain their mystique, uh, in an age when you can pull up, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of them uh, on your handheld device or on the computer screen. Yeah, it's especially interesting. We were talking about this. The the quote that I read at the top was actually um, obtained from a site called Esoterica Archives, where many of these have been uh, translated into English and then transcribed into HTML, including uh, scanned images of some of the sigils that are within them. Um, and it's obviously a very different experience when you're reading it off of uh, Google Chrome yeah. rather than uh, opening up a, a book made of human flesh. Mm-hmm. But I find that there is still something a little hair-raising about reading through it. Um, maybe it's uh, the grammar, uh, going back to the original uh, you know, idea of where this this word grimoire came from. There's something about the way that the words are laid out and... Uh, the symbols are sort of unknown and, and, you know, why did they choose those particular lines and, and curves for uh, being able to summon the demon Zagan, you know, yeah. uh, rather than, a, a, you know, another symbol? Um, yeah, it's yeah. just interesting. I mean, it leads right back again into just the, the power of written language and the idea mm-hmm. that you it allows us to cement these ephemeral notions to 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 take to take this, these thoughts and these uh, these rituals that someone conceived in you know centuries, even uh, millennia ago, and uh, and programming them into your own mind, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's I, I would I would agree that they still they still hold a certain amount of power um, if you are in the mind to engage with them. Yeah, so they have historical influence, and they're still around today, mm-hmm. and they're 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 definitely fascinating to look through. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily. Uh, would use them to conjure a demon or uh, try to turn invisible anytime soon. <laughs> but uh, it's fascinating to look at, at the, the history of them in conjunction with the religious and, and historical movements and uh, rise and fall of, of, of societies, basically, especially in Western Europe. Yeah. And if I were to use one today, I would hope that there would be, would be sort of a turbo tax overlay system in the same way that the TurboTax or, or various other tax uh, programs are kind of like a user interface for a more complex tax code. Yeah, exactly. I would want a, a nice uh, user interface for a more complex uh, grimoire. That's a, exactly what, what we need is some, somebody needs to come out with an app. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, what kind of demon do you want today? Uh, okay, I'll go for the sex code. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then what attributes am I looking for? All right, I'll click these off and... Done, and yeah. then it's just like, okay, go get your wormwood and myrrh, and <laughs> and you're done. Yeah, built-in tea timer, and you're good to go. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. Uh, a little uh, little dive into the world of grimoires, uh, their history, their their interface with our modern world and our modern lives, our modern fiction. Um, if you would like uh, to learn more about this topic, be sure to check out the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. I'll include uh, links to related content as well as links out to uh, materials that we've discussed here. If you would like to uh, send us an email, you can email us at StuffToBlowYourMind at HowStuffWorks.com. And, uh, Christian, if they want to reach out to you in particular, uh, what email address can they reach you at? Uh, you, you can find me online uh, in my personal capacity at ChristianSager.tumblr.com. That's where uh, my personal works, whether I'm writing about comic books or 
grimoires and occult texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find that stuff. And largely, uh, I uh, will be found on the Brain Stuff channel here at How Stuff Works, uh, our g- general science YouTube show. So yeah, we'll catch you next time. In the meantime, check us out at StuffToBlowYourMind.com and BrainStuffShow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.